Well, our fourth scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. And so I invite you to turn there with me at this time. We're in a series on 1 Peter, selections in the letter of 1 Peter. And so this morning we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. And I'll be reading from the ESV. As you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You may be seated. Now, right away, we got a couple things working against us in this passage. First, as you may have noticed in verse 18... This passage is addressed specifically to slaves or household servants, domestic slaves. And last time I checked, none of you in this congregation fit that category as household servant or slave. So how do we apply it to us today? There's one. Two, even if this Slave-specific passage is, is meant to apply to all Christians who are experiencing unjust suffering. The, the suffering faced by Christians in the first century in the Roman Empire is like nothing we experience today, at least in America. These Christians, as many of you likely know, were subject to to state-sanctioned, widespread persecution, prosecution even, due to their core, distinctive, categorically Christian belief, which is Christ is Lord, meaning Caesar is not. In other words, they weren't being persecuted or arrested for fringe positions, for, for positions maybe about the family or about philosophy, about what to eat and drink that were in flux and debated by early Christians. They, they were persecuted for this central core claim that Christ is Lord, which of course means that the emperor is not. This belief... It caused many to refuse participation in activities that 
would venerate Caesar as a god. So perhaps public sacrifices or festivals or activities of worship in the home where the master would worship a shrine to Caesar and so forth. And so their refusal to to worship Caesar as a god, which clashed with their Christian claim, led to persecution. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear some, some Christians claiming today that Christians in America are persecuted, um, are, are, are facing an experience somewhat similar to the early church. But friends, I just don't think that that's the case. I think today, some Christians, in standing up for positions which are debated even among Christians, are sometimes met with resistance. And it's not from the state as a whole, but it's just from some in the culture who disagree with those positions. I even see some people who are not Christians agreeing with some of those positions, meaning that that these are not fundamentally Christian positions like Christ is Lord. So the early Christians and the, the persecution they faced, I think, is different from some of the resistance that we face. So the passage is addressed to slaves and we're not slaves, and it speaks of systematic persecution, and that's not something we experience. So can, friends, can this passage then speak to us at all? I don't think so. I'm just kidding. No, of course it can. Of course it can. I just needed to see how you'd react. No, of course it can. We just have to do some study to get there. And before we get into that study, Let's take a moment to pray. So would you now, friends, pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are here knowing that you speak through your word, but knowing that your word refers us to a time and a place, a situation that is often quite different from ours. So Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to to see that you give us soft hearts so that we can hear what it is that the Spirit is saying, possibly saying to us through this passage. Help us, Lord, in our time together to come to resemble you more so that we can walk with you, follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get into the text verse by verse, and I would like to spend the majority of our time this morning doing that, um, I need to to situate it in its context in in the letter. Last week we looked at a passage toward the end of chapter 1, and so now we're jumping to a text toward the end of chapter 2. Now 1 Peter, as I mentioned before, is addressed to Christians in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, who were experiencing, like I said, persecution and, and, and suffering on account of following Christ. And so this letter is written to these Christians who are called exiles or sojourners, who are citizens of a new realm, but still have to live in the old realm, encouraging them 
through their suffering, helping them walk with Christ and not lose heart. We see in 1 Peter 2, spanning from verse 13 all the way, actually, through chapter 3, verse 7, this large section about submission to authority. That's the heading you get in the ESV. Peter is not counseling the believers to, uh, toward outright revolt or a sort of social revolution, overthrowing the, the government, anything like that, but but he's, he's encouraging these believers to infuse the, the structures of society, even the hierarchical structures, to infuse them with the heart of Christ and to live as Christians in the midst of, of those realities. So first in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2, we get a passage addressed to all the believers, encouraging them to submit to all authorities says the emperor, the, the governors, you'd have local prefects and Roman officials, etc. And then in verses 18 through 25, we get a section that's addressed directly to servants, household servants or slaves. And in that passage, it seems that the direction is broadened to all believers facing suffering. That's our text for this morning. Then at the beginning of chapter 3, you get instructions to wives to submit to husbands who legally were the the heads of the household at this time, and to live as followers of of Christ within those structures. And then lastly, in verse 7, there is specific guidance to husbands. And so we see a pattern similar to some of the household codes that you'll see in some of the other letters in the New Testament. So our passage, and the lectionary omits verse 18, because I I think they want to avoid the impression that this only applies to, to slaves, our passage is part of this instruction specifically to domestic slaves in the first century. In verse 18, it says, servants, slaves... Be subject to your masters with all respect. It says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So this is similar to the pattern just before, submitting to uh, government officials, even if they are not good and gentle, but unjust. But it seems that this is broadened to apply to not only slaves in the first century. Our text for this morning begins formally in verse 19, where Peter says, For this is a gracious thing. For this. Now, do you think the for this is referring back to what was immediately said before in verse 18? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not just to the good ones, but also to the bad. For this is a gracious thing. Or is it pointing forward? For this is a gracious thing, namely, that when mindful of God, one endures suffering unjustly, etc., etc. Commentators debate about this, and I think the debate shows that it refers to both. And you can see that both are saying the same thing. It is a gracious thing, in other words, it is a, a credit is the language, almost in financial terms. It is 
profitable, uh, it is beneficial for you to endure suffering, it says, when mindful of God. Now, literally, you could translate this uh, through consciousness of God. And I think the idea is uh, in, in attempting to carry out God's will, in trying to live according to God's values, if, if you suffer for doing this, that's actually not something to be ashamed of. It's likely that these, these servants, in refusing to do things their, their masters commanded out of allegiance to Christ, they, they suffered, and, and perhaps they came to, to think of themselves in a, in a negative light, as though God had abandoned them. But Peter is encouraging them and saying, no, this is actually a good thing. This is evidence, as we'll see later, that you are following in the footsteps of Christ. So the first point he makes is that suffering for doing God's will is favorable. It's, it's a grace. It's a gift almost. It, it doesn't mean you've been cast away, but it means you are in the, the light of God's favor, favorable in his eyes. The next verse, then in verse 20, provides a contrast, kind of the opposite of this, to help explain exactly what, what Peter's trying to say. He says, what credit is it, what good is it, in verse 20, if when you sin, when you do, do wrong in the eyes of God, or even sin against your master and are beaten for it, you endure that suffering? Is that good? Is, is that a credit? And the obvious answer is no. No. Suffering for doing wrong, just suffering for its own sake, is, is not a credit. It's not profitable in the eyes of God, no. And then we get a restatement at the end of verse 20 of what he said before. If, when you do good and suffer for this, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this opening section, the first two verses, comprise an exhortation to these household slaves encouraging them to, to keep enduring suffering on account of doing God's will, and that such suffering is not something to be ashamed of, something to get you stuck, to get you down, but is actually evidence that, that you are existing in a favorable light in the eyes of God, that you are being seen with grace. And this is a rather basic idea, but that is the first point in verses 19 through 20. Now, what we then get in verses 21 through 25 is motivation, a section that is meant to, to motivate these household servants, which this has been broadened to anyone. It says in verse 19 that if, if anyone endures unjust suffering, so this is a section on what, what motivates us to continue to endure suffering on account of doing God's will. And in this section, we hear the story of Christ, the, the sufferer par excellence. And the story of Christ is meant to give us an example, an example of someone who has suffered just like us in terms of these slaves, an example, but also an enabler. So Christ's life provides an, an example that we can follow and mimic 
But his life and his work on the cross actually enables us to live this sort of life. And so let's look into this at verse 21. It says in verse 21 that that believers have actually been called to this. And again, this, we have to figure out what is being referred to here. It seems that suffering on account of doing God's will is the this to which we are called. This is actually part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. We talked about this on Easter Sunday where Holding the death of Christ in our bodies is not some accident that happens to some, but is actually part of the DNA of of Christians right now. We've been called to this. And it says then that even the Christ, even the Messiah, the long-awaited, promised heir of David, liberator of Israel, the Son of God, even Jesus Christ suffered. And the language here is difficult to disentangle. It's either he suffered for us in our behalf, he suffered like us. In any case, what's important is that even Christ suffered, just as you are suffering. And then in the next two lines, which I should say in verses 21 through 25, they're set apart in the Greek as a a hymn. Scholars think that this was a pre-existing hymn that was recited as a poem or sung by Christians, or that Peter actually composed this, but it's set apart from the normal paragraphs, and it's as though it's a liturgical saying that people would repeat and memorize. To this you've been called, even Christ suffered. It says, leaving behind for you an example, an example. This is an extremely rare word. It's the only time this word is found in the New Testament. And before 1 Peter, this word referred to the the general outlines of a story that would enable you to to tell the story. It's the structure of a narrative that would help you tell it in detail and full. But right after 1 Peter, there's evidence of this word being used to refer to, get this, school exercises that would help children learn how to write the Greek and Latin alphabet. And so I'm sure you remember as a kid, you get a sheet of paper with the the dashed lines, the letters, you know, and the idea was to trace, trace the letters over and over and over and over again So that, if given a blank sheet of paper, you'd be able to write. Write the letters on your own. The point was not to become a a perfect copier or tracer, but but to learn how to write the letters on your own. An, An example. It says, Christ left behind for us in his suffering, and I would say not only in his suffering, in in the shape of his life. He left behind for us something to trace in our own lives. So as we experience things that Christ experienced, perhaps suffering on account of doing God's will, as we maybe engage in the the healing and restoration ministry that he engaged in, as we kind of copy Jesus, it's as though we're tracing the letters, which is, is meant to be a means to 
another end to, to be able to write them on our own. So keep that in mind. So Christ leaves behind for us an example in his suffering. And not only this, it says that this example is, is for the purpose of, or so that, we might follow closely in his foot, footprints, is what the word means. This word could also refer to the sole of the foot. It's really not the, the act of walking, like you follow in someone's footsteps, that kind of thing, but it's, it's, it's the footprint. Now, I, I want you to imagine a child, perhaps school age, and there's a snow day, you know, blankets of snow covering fields, and it's just pure and white and, and blank. And a, and a, a child goes with, with his father to this field, and they're going to go on a walk in the snow. And the child has to do something first, and so the, the father goes first. This probably wouldn't really happen, but just imagine this with me. And so when the child is ready to go, he doesn't see the father. He wants to catch up with him. He wants to go where he's going. He wants to walk through the snow. But the kid is, is small, and the snow is really deep. So finally, the child sees these footprints. It's all you can see in the snow, just a set of footprints. And of course, the footprints lead the child to the father, lead him where the father is, but the, the footprints compacting the snow, the deep snow, actually enable the child to walk through the snow. It guides the child to where the, the father is, but it also helps him navigate this difficult terrain. And without the footprints, the child wouldn't know where to go and probably wouldn't be able to navigate the snow. So Jesus, in his life, in his suffering especially for us, he gives us an example, letters to trace, and he also gives us footprints, showing us where to go, but also helping us to go. Let's look first at the example in verses 22 and 23. What kind of things did Jesus do, at least what does Peter mention, that we're to keep in mind as we try to mimic Christ in our lives? Well, first in 22, it says he did not sin. There you go, guys. Easy as that, right? He did not sin. He was completely innocent. And in parallel fashion, then, it says, and this is quoting Isaiah 53, 9, neither was deceit or trickery or guile found in his mouth. So Christ is innocent, spotless, doing nothing to deserve suffering. That's the first point. Then says in verse 23 that when he was reviled, when he was rebuked or mocked, he, he did not revile in return. This is verbal assault, and he's not verbally retaliating, getting defensive and, and yelling back in anger. When suffering, again in parallel, still part of the hymn, when suffering, he did not threaten Oh, my father's going to get you. Christ is innocent. 
and he doesn't retaliate. And lastly, it says that he entrusts to the one who judges justly. Friends, there's no object to the verb here. The ESV imagines entrusting himself, but that object is not provided. It's just he entrusts. And I think the point is that as, as he's being mocked, antagonized, condemned by these enemies, he's entrusting his fate himself, yes, his fate to the just judge, his heavenly father. He's entrusting his enemies and their fate to the Father. He's not taking it upon himself to bring that about. He's entrusting the entire situation, his entire life, to the Father, the one who judges justly. So the tracing exercise that we've been given consists of innocence, living pure lives that don't deserve suffering, not retaliating when we do suffer, and entrusting everything, our entire lives, to God. Those are the letters that we are to trace Christ as example. But next, like I said, friends, Christ enables us not only to trace the letters, but to go on to write them on our own, on a blank sheet of paper. Starting at verse 24, we get famous words again from Isaiah 53. It says, He, Christ, the innocent, non-retaliatory Christ who's trusting the Father in everything, Christ bears our sin. And this is the word for to carry sheaves of wheat or the supplies for an offering or a religious sacrifice to carry it up to the altar and and offer it to God. He carries our sins in that way in his body on the tree. It says tree here. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus was crucified on a cross, a wooden cross. But in the Old Testament... If anyone was hung on a tree, that person was considered cursed, accursed by God, forsaken by God. Jesus, it says, carries all of our sin, I think of it almost on his, on his back as a burden, carries it up to this altar, and with that sin becomes cursed by hanging on a tree, curses our sin for us, but in so doing, he himself is cursed. He does this so that, it says, so that we can part ways from sin. The ESV says die, but, but this is not the word, the normal word for die. This means to exist apart from something. And so in, in, in cursing our sin on the tree, on the cross, he enables us to exist for the first time apart from sin so that we may live in righteousness, so that we, we, we may walk in the, the footprints of righteousness, so that we aren't overwhelmed by the depth of the snow, 
by the difficulty of tracing the letters, but he, he helps us. He helps us walk like him and walk behind him. And lastly, we get the phrase on which Bonhoeffer preached on that fateful day in 1945, by his, this is singular, by his wound, you have been healed. It's singular in Hebrew, Isaiah. It's singular in Greek, Isaiah. It's singular here. Bruise is sometimes how it's translated, his welt. It's as though Jesus is, is stung for us, and from this this wound that is, is gushing blood comes life and healing, precious font of, of water that is cleansing. By his divine wound, his trauma even, you've been healed. So Christ, we see, doesn't just give us an example to follow, but In his life, he enables us to get unstuck from sin and to walk behind him and to live a life that is according to God's will. Finally, friends, in verse 25, we get language evoking Psalm 23, which which is alluding to Isaiah 53 again. It says, For you all were like sheep wandering lost, implied here as sheep without a shepherd, walking through the valley of the shadow of death alone with no rod, no staff to comfort us. We were lost in danger, but through Christ, it says you have returned This really is the passive voice, friends. It's you have been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. We have been returned through the life of Christ to this good shepherd that Psalm 23 and John 10 speaks of, a good shepherd who gives us footprints, gives us the letters to trace, who leads us to our eternal home. Now, as you can see, friends, there are three images that I've emphasized in this passage. The image of tracing letters, the school exercise, following in footprints, and lastly, this image of a shepherd leading sheep. With tracing the letters, like I said, the idea is is not to become an expert tracer, so that all you do is trace forever and ever perfectly. The idea is to be able to write the letters on your own. With following in footprints, the idea is not that you would become perfectly adept at fitting your foot right there in the footprint, and that you are just the guy to call on when you need someone to to put feet in footprints. The idea is that you'd get to where the person in front of you is going. That you'd end up there where they're going at, at that destination and with the, the image of the child in some sense that you're enabled. There's a path that enables you to get there. And lastly, with the shepherd and the sheep, 
the sheep were alone. In order to find food and water, green pastures and still waters, to navigate Death Valley and to avoid predators, the sheep need a shepherd. The presence of the shepherd is, is great, but in the eyes of the sheep, it is a means to another end. It's a means to life. They need the shepherd to lead them to a place where they can have abundant life. These domestic slaves, who I think stand for all the believers that Peter's addressing, in the suffering they're experiencing, they're tracing letters, they're following footprints, they're being led by a shepherd. But all of these examples, friends, suggest movement, progress toward a destination or a goal. The suffering itself, the, the imitation itself, isn't the destination. The, the goal isn't to just copy Jesus forever and ever and ever for all eternity. The goal, rather, and you see this all over the New Testament, the goal is to follow. To follow, which means you're walking toward a certain destination. The New Testament actually rarely talks about imitating God or Christ. There's a little bit of that, but way more often it says imitate a certain person, imitate Paul, imitate Peter as they're imitating Christ. What we get far more often is the language of following. Following God, following Christ, making followers, making disciples of Christ. Like I said, in following someone, the goal is to get where they are going, to end up where they will end up. It's, it's more about the destination than just the act of following, is what I'm trying to say. Suffering unjustly, in our case, really experiencing anything that Christ has experienced in his life, shows that in imitating him, we're following him. It shows that, that in those experiences, we're, we're tracing the letters, we're moving, and so we're, we're making progress toward a certain destination. The good news, friends, is not the suffering itself, not just the imitation, but it's the end point. In our Christian lives, as we mimic the life of Jesus, we are journeying ever so slowly toward God, the presence of God. We're journeying toward a particular destination, an eternal experience of God's presence. That's where we're going. So following Jesus is our task right now. Imitating him, following him, that's our task. And sooner or later, that will mean suffering. It will. But the goal, the destination, the true end of that task is dwelling, abiding in the presence of God. So as we navigate life post-Easter Sunday as we try to muster the strength to keep going, 
I want us to continue to focus on those themes from 1 Peter 1, on hope, on inheritance, on salvation, on arriving finally in the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the, the privilege to not only imitate you, but to follow you. To go where you are going, to go where you're leading. Help us, Lord, to look ahead of us at the shepherd who walks before us. And even though it's difficult, even though the snow is deep and the valleys are dark, to know that with each step we are moving toward God's presence, eternity in His presence. So I pray that we would continue to walk this week and moving forward through this season of Easter and that we'd remember that we follow so that we can get to where You are going, Lord. And right now, you are at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for us. We thank you so much for that. So please be with us as we continue to worship you this morning. Be glorified through our worship, please. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.